1: PUT is a not-for-profit industry watchdog organization dedicated to exposing the truth about the shady, abusive practices of pharmacy benefit managers and how they affect American patients, healthcare providers, and taxpayers. On the PUTcast, we'll talk to pharmacy industry experts, influencers, and patients, Always with the goal of bringing the truth, transparency, and solutions to America's prescription drug affordability crisis.
0: Hi, everybody. Welcome to the podcast. This is Monique Whitney. I am the executive director of Pharmacists United for Truth and Transparency. And it has been a little while, but I am super excited to be joined by our president, Scott Newman. Hi, Scott. How are you?
2: Good to be back. Hey.
0: Good to have you back. So you're you're joining us today by phone because you had a computer update.
2: Yeah, computer updates, right when you need your computer even though it stays on all the time.
0: Right, right, and it's always like the super long one. No doubt. So we are joined today by two of our favorite people. Uh, You know, here at PUTT, we spend a lot of time talking about issues related to PBM reform. Uh, we get sometimes very deeply into detail, and we don't often get the chance to talk about what we're going to talk about today, which is the patient's point of view and patient advocates. So uh, you and I are big fans of the two guests that we have today, and I'm, I'm super, super excited to, um, to welcome them. I'd like to start by welcoming Loretta Bosing. Uh, we have had the pleasure of knowing her for quite a few years now. Loretta, welcome to the program
1: Thank you so much for having me. I'm so thankful to
0: be here, and I appreciate all that PET does as well. Thank you. Thank you for that. And so Loretta is the founder of Unite for Safe Medications, and we're going to ask her to tell her story about that and how her organization came to be. And then also we have Beth Waldron. Beth is an independent patient advocate, but many of us know her from her outspoken social media presence. Beth, welcome. Thank you. Happy to be here. We are thrilled to have you both. So ladies, you are a couple of powerhouses and uh, Scott and I and and many of the PUP members follow you on social media. We often uh, talk about your work when we get together in our meetings and our board meetings each month. I think what would be great would be to, to learn a little bit more about you and have the audience know more about you. Loretta, why don't why don't we start with you? If you could just tell us a little bit about yourself and about how you came to first uh, get involved with patient advocacy and, and how you came to found your organization.
1: I started Unite for Safe Medications. So Unite for Safe Medications, our mission is to save lives and advance patient outcomes by improving the quality, safety, and access of pharmaceutical care. Uh, so my advocacy started after we were forced to Melwater Pharmacy and found out the hard way that the temperatures in Melwater are not regulated. And I'm like, wait a second, you know, you cannot force us to Melwater Pharmacy if you're not going to simply even regulate the temperatures. So I started a petition on change.org just uh, in the last couple of weeks, it's hit 200,000 supporters to stop the forcing of mail order. And from there, I would just learn about, you know, other issues such as delays, you know, um, spoke with patients who are now dead after receiving the wrong medications for the mail order pharmacy that they were forced to use. Um, you know, it's just uh, such an injustice with everything that's happening. And then, you know, when I reached out to U.S. Department of Labor, they suggested that I start a Twitter account because it's unethical. The laws are going to have to change. So I started the Twitter account. Then I learned about all these issues with pharmacy and uh, found the pharmacists on Twitter who were there because, you know, they could have, you know, handles that would hide their names so they could speak openly about the issues. And I just uncovered so much about pharmacy benefit managers and just more than what I ever thought I would know about pharmacy. And I'm just uh, thankful for everyone willing to share their knowledge. But at the same time, we have major issues here and I refuse to leave this type of pharmaceutical care behind for my son. So I'm here every day for him and for all the patients. That's wonderful. Thank you. And
0: and it is your son. He is the reason that this happened, right? Can you tell us a little bit about that story?
1: Yeah. So my son had received a liver transplant after he got the flu. Uh, his body had uh, overreaction and his immune system fought off his kidneys and liver. He did uh, get a liver transplant and we were told at that time he would need medications every 12 hours for the rest of his life. Uh, not long after we were discharged, we tried Millwater Pharmacy and they shipped his medications on a 102 degree day in only a bag, and I felt the bottle was so hot. And I'm just like, surely someone's making sure that it's safe. But he ends up back in the hospital in transplant rejection. The transplant he just got, you know, here we are. It, it's at at risk. His life is at risk again. And I'm just like, never again will I use mill water unless I can prove that it is safe. And when I investigated, there were major concerns, or else I wouldn't be here today, probably. You know, um, so I'm thankful he's he's 12 now. He's doing great, Um, but his life will forever rely on those medications and a pharmacist. So I want to make sure that he always has a relationship with a pharmacist that he he trusts and that he's able to use a safe pharmacy.
0: Thank you for sharing that story. And because you and I, that's how we actually met. I remember uh, for, for the people in the audience who are listening Loretta contacted she had a conversation with the the pharmacy a, a very large pharmacy who shall not be named but who may or may not start with letters of the alphabet they didn't I think respond as you would hope they would right And so it had I remember when you you and I talked you were like, I'm just so angry about this and and you were very emotional about that and I was like, yeah, I know right that's that's terrible because because as a mom you know there's so many things to worry about. And then the last thing in the world that would be on your mind is that medications, which your son relies on for his life, that those now you have to worry about those too. You know, now you have to go into the world of medical chemistry and try to make sure that it's okay and that the integrity of the medication hasn't degraded because, you know, it's sitting in a mailbox or because it was delivered on a hot day when the FDA actually requires that pharmacies themselves have to keep their the interior of their pharmacies at a certain temperature just to dispense everyday medications and here you're receiving it at 102 right Mm -hmm. so yeah i'm glad wesley's doing well that's that's really great
2: that was also one of the uh first uh, times we had some proof that they were significantly overpaying themselves by requiring to use mail order where you know the independent pharmacy was charging you know 80 bucks or so and and cvs was charging her her plan like you know, what was more than like 120 bucks or something like that. I I can't remember the numbers exactly, but not only were they forcing you to use mail order, but it was more expensive when the costs were paid.
1: Oh yeah. Yeah. And I would find out that, I mean, here I am driving back and forth to the, the city hospital, you know, to get my son's medications when I would find out really, I, with the cost of gas, I could have got it from my independent pharmacy who would deliver safely in a temperature controlled vehicle for a $50 cash price. You know, so uncovering that as a patient and as a caregiver was just like, wow, you know, why is, why aren't more being told about this? And back then, I mean, we still had gag clauses on pharmacists. I mean, seriously, I'm just a mom. I had, I didn't know what a gag clause was. you know. Uh, so the pharmacists have just been great about teaching me a lot more than what I ever wanted to know about pharmacy. But I mean, it's just alarming though, to know what's happening. And if we don't get loud, what will continue to happen and our pharmacies are closing. We have so many issues that we we have to, you know, keep keep advocating for. It's such an important part.
0: Yeah, exactly. And so you just mentioned get loud, which immediately is the perfect segue to introduce Beth because uh, Beth is actually. So I don't know Beth if you know this or not, uh, but I first heard your name even before I saw your social media posts. I was talking with uh, some other advocates on the topic of non medical switching. And they mentioned that you are this outspoken advocate. and then lo and behold, I switch over and, and I'm seeing this you know range of thoughts and information that you're putting out there. So it's it's really, really wonderful to have you here and to, to have you share your story about how did you first become involved and what what maybe even was the moment that led you to become this outspoken advocate that you are.
3: Well, you know, I I feel like I've had sort of two advocacy lives. One is sort of uh, when I became a patient 19 years ago, I had a a life-threatening medical event. I had blood clots, deep vein thrombosis, and pulmonary embolism that happened out of the blue. I was 34 years old, had a three-year-old son at the time, and, and quite honestly, I nearly died from that clotting experience. And I'm high risk for a recurrence. And so I am going to be on lifelong anticoagulant medication to prevent a recurrence. So from that experience, I had been working in health policy when that clotting event occurred. I began volunteering and getting engaged as a patient advocate then in thrombosis education, helping educate patients about the signs and symptoms of blood clots and doctors about, okay, why, why isn't there more screenings and, and anticoagulation education and, and things like that. And I actually helped found an education program at the University of North Carolina in Chapel Hill. So, I, you know, I have this background in, in thrombosis advocacy and in patient education. But nothing had sort of prepared me for the the past year, which I would call my second chapter in patient advocacy. As I said, I I take an anticoagulant, a a blood thinning medication to help prevent a blood clot recurrence. And unfortunately, um, this particular class of medication comes with some risks and namely a risk of bleeding. It is actually the, the number one class of medication for adverse events. And my own father actually developed a bleed while he was taking a blood thinner that they were the doctors were not able to control. And unfortunately, he died as a result of, of that bleeding episode. So I know very well the risks that come with clotting and the risks that come with bleeding. And so I place a very high premium on proper anticoagulation management. And so the choice of which drug to take is something that I discuss with my physician at each and every visit. We discuss my risk for bleeding. We discuss my risk for clotting. We discuss any changes in my medical history. And we make a decision together, which medication should I be on? You know, it's really, we talk about shared decision-making in healthcare, and it really is a wonderful model for shared decision-making. So I have been stable and doing well on this particular brand of medication for the past eight years until I go to my mailbox last November. And there's a lovely letter from my insurance company's pharmacy benefit manager, uh, informing me that my medication is no longer going to be covered, and I would need to switch to another brand of medication. And that was it. It did not even include a phone number to call if I had a question. It did not mention if there was an appeals process. It simply said, contact your doctor and ask for a prescription for a new covered medication or else be prepared to pay the full retail price. And I was shocked, I I just, my doctor and I had made such thoughtful treatment decisions together, And I just could not believe that my insurance company could switch my blood thinner over my doctor's recommendations. So that's sort of how I first became aware of of the term PBM. That was a new term to me at that point. And and really the power that they have over patients and, and over coming between the decisions that patients
0: and doctors make. And I think you bring up a good point about the thoughtful decision that you and your doctor make. And Loretta, I know you can relate to this as well you know, our doctors, I'm a patient, I'm not a pharmacist, as everybody who listens to the podcast knows, when we go to meet with our physician, it's not a process of, you know, they just whip out some, you know, catalog and decide right there on the spot, which drug you're going to take. This is a, it's a thoughtful process. And it is also part of the process, part of the process, I should say, is to have the pharmacist also weigh on this, which has happened as well. You know, I know in my own medical treatment. And so it is frustrating when you've gone through the process, you're you're working with a team of healthcare providers who understand everything about you and the way your particular system works. And then here comes somebody not remotely related, their job is to process the claim, ostensibly anyway, their job is to process the claim and to, you know, make payment in partnership with you and your employer. But they come in and they're like, no, Uh, You can't have that medication. You have to have this medication, or no, you can't have that medication until you failed on these other medications. It's a really frustrating process.
3: Well, absolutely. And, you know, when this happened, I, you know, began researching and asking questions. And I found out that I could ask my doctor to file a prior authorization request, but the stated, the written approval criteria required that I first take and fail the new medication and failure on an anticoagulant means you develop a bleed or a clot. (laughs) So so that's not very attractive to me. And even then, if the medication, if the prior authorization is approved, it is placed in a higher copay tier, which would make it subject to coinsurance and deductible. So for me personally, that would mean an additional $2,400 a year to stay on the medication that I've been doing well on for the past eight years. But I was not the only patient who received that letter in November. There was around 150,000 patients nationally who received similar letters who were stable on their anticoagulant therapy, uh, switching their medications at that time. So that's really, I think, quite shocking to me is that a a corporation who does not know the patient, who does not know the patient's medical history, can essentially practice medicine without a license by determining the benefit structure can impact the care that the patient receives and, and come between care decisions that have been
0: made between a patient and a physician.
2: I'm sure there was no profit motive for CVS behind that decision.
0: Oh right. Yeah, no, not at all. They they certainly couldn't have done that in the interest of their own bottom line. Beth, did you did you uh, talk to your insurance company at all? What what happened when you once you got that letter and were told to, you had to fail first?
3: Well, what I uh <laughs> What I did is I found out, I, I you know, given my background, I, I just started doing a lot of a lot of research. And I learned that there were 17 nonprofits who had actually come out and spoken out against this particular formulary drop because it was perceived as so dangerous to switch stable cardiovascular patients off their anticoagulant. I got engaged, I began volunteering as a patient, I began getting active on social media, I began reaching out to reporters. In effect, I I decided to become a squeaky wheel to my PBM so that they could not ignore me. I I made a conscious decision that if they were comfortable taking away my longtime effective medication, then they were gonna get to know me and they were gonna get to know other patients Impacted by this decision, and right on. <laughs> because, because it, you know, part of it is it simply wasn't right. You know, again, you know, we're, we're not talking about a, a benign thing. I mean, this is a very serious class of medication. There's a lot of dangers with this particular class of medications. You know, I take this particular medication for deep vein thrombosis and pulmonary embolism, but the majority of patients take it who have atrial fibrillation to prevent stroke. And so adverse, we were very afraid of adverse events. Uh, You know, it takes a long time working with your physician, working with your cardiologist to get stable, to get your, 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 your heart stable, your heart rhythm stable. Um, And you don't wanna jeopardize that stability for a non-medical reason. So a lot of nonprofits were very afraid of adverse events happening as a result of this decision. And in fact, as time went on, reports of adverse events did begin to emerge. And once patients began sharing their experiences on social media and to reporters and to the news media, and there started to be public, you know, published reports. Um, that's when things started rolling, and we actually did get a formulary reversal that was effective July 1st. Uh, unfortunately, a lot of patients don't know about this reversal because the PBM has not sent out letters notifying patients that we have covered access available again. So it's really has been a word of mouth thing to try to get, you know, to let patients and physicians know that this medication is covered again. My understanding is the PBM will be updating their website in October, listing this medication as back on formulary, but it is covered again right now.
0: So if I understand you correctly, they sent letters out saying, you're only gonna have access to this one medication. You and others got loud. They reversed that decision, but they're not now sending out letters to say the decision is reversed. They're just waiting for people to figure it out on their own or hear it word of mouth. Is that right?
3: That is absolutely correct. So yeah, I re- I received a letter informing me that my medication would no longer be covered, but for whatever reason, they are choosing not to send follow-up letters that it is, that it is covered again.
0: Yeah. Well, stay classy, PBMs. Well, like, uh, <laughs> we're it's, we're it's, putting we're putting the patient first. <laughs> the patient first, absolutely. Yeah, it's it's really frustrating. Uh, you know, from the the pharmacy side, pharmacists have long dealt with the "oops, we goofed" letters. They'll send these letters out that say, "Oh, your pharmacy is no longer in this network," or mm-hmm. you know, or if you keep using this pharmacy, your uh, copay will go up, and it's always wrong. And then as soon as they're found out. You know, it's like, oh, oops, we goofed, but then there's all this damage done, and they never send another letter out saying, oh, sorry, we made a mistake. It's it's just funny. Like there's always the the ability to send the the letter out to inform people of the change. Never for some reason the letter coming back saying, oh, sorry, you know, are bad. So instead, it's going to be up to the patient to to find their own way. Which you know, I'd love to know from your point of view what and Loretta, you might want to you know chime in on this, especially given what you went through with Wesley. How do you go about making that complaint? I mean, you just—you started off as saying you're not a pharmacist. You know, you, you're a mom. You had this other life. How how yeah. did you educate yourself to even learn what to do to take the steps you had to take?
1: Well, for me, I first, I was taught in in my role. I I was an insurance agent at one time, so I would every once in a while appeal decisions. So of course, I had to figure out who's supposed to be regulating this, and. At first, my first thought is it has to be the FDA. Uh, You know, so I called the FDA after getting like multiple different stories being told from the middle order pharmacy. So the FDA would direct me to the state board of pharmacy that would find out would have a role, but just it wasn't being enforced. And then I looked to see why would they not enforce their own role? And you look at the boards and. I'm sorry again, but these a lot of the board members are in my state are mostly uh, from the PBMs or affiliates. and I'm like, oh no, <laughs> you know. So then I realized I filed a complaint with the Department of Insurance. It would go to the U.S Department of Labor, reported an uh, NBC article uh, about military pharmacy issues that, you know, the U.S Department of Labor Representative would say, well, you know although it's unethical, when we hear a lot of these complaints, it's not illegal. And I'm like, what do you mean this isn't illegal? Like, how could this not be illegal? And at this time, I'm just connecting with so many other patients with similar stories and issues. And then uh, the FDA saying that they get complaints like mine all the time. And I'm like, how in the world is this, you know, continuing to go on? And you look, you know, how much money these companies give our legislators and uh, just today, just today. um, I decided to reach out to CMS because I was taught, you know, as an insurance agent, if you suspect fraud, waste, and abuse, you need to report it. So I'm going to give this a try. So I call and had a nice long conversation. Well, I mostly spoke to all the issues. And I'm like, this is fraud and I want to report it. And uh, she's like, okay, well, if you want to report this uh, part of the notes that I'm reading here, you're going to need to go back to the PBMs or she said the pharmacies, which is, you know, the PBMs, Express Scripts, Optum CBS CVS Caremark. And I'm like, you got to be kidding me. I have to go back to them to file a complaint on fraud against them. And she confirmed, yes, that's correct. And I'm like, wow, no wonder why and how we got in this situation, right? I mean, if they're the ones guarding the in-house, it's like, oh my goodness. You know, so I still like learn more every single day about, you know, who to file complaints to or where to go. I've I filed complaints with the FBI, you know, anyone at all, because, I mean, this is fraud um, to force patients to this. Recently, uh, the National Association of Boards of Pharmacy meeting, the students presented information that showed that 80% of these packages by mail were exposed to temperatures deemed unsafe by the FDA. The university that did uh, offer that information was the Southwestern Oklahoma State University College of Pharmacy, and uh, that was presented again at the National Association of Boards of Pharmacy meeting in Oklahoma. Uh, even they they shared the information of the room temperature medications, but even the. The medications that are in ice packs and foam coolers, some of those reach temperatures of 90 degrees because those trucks reach up to 170 degrees in the summertime. And I hope that they'll replicate that uh, same study like during the cold winter months uh, because I know I I put my child's Tylenol in one of those in the middle of uh, the polar vortex and uh, it was frozen solid in just a few hours. So I know that there's issues there too, but they'll be doing a phase two study there. I also connected with uh, the Dean, um, Texas A&M. Their pharmacy students are working with Amazon on a temperature study. Now, you know, we have to have the transparency there, but one thing I can tell you is that Amazon some of their trucks are temperature controlled, so that's good, but then you still have the issue of the mailbox, and you know, there's just so many other issues with Melwater Pharmacy, but I'm hopeful that we will continue to connect and encourage more students, um, uh, more universities to start studying what happens to medications when they are stored you know, in higher temperatures to ensure, one, that it, what's the risk to patients and how can we do better, um, and hopefully to get uh, more regulations on how our medications are handled throughout the supply chain. I mean, patients should one, at least be one of the risk, but two, be told like where to report to if they do have issues. Um, that's a major problem. Most patients have no clue where where to report complaints to or report fraud to. Um, I hope that in time that we can encourage medications to be delivered faster than any other package if they're by mail. You know, every. Christmas, there's issues where uh, patients are like, where's my medications? And you'll see USPS on Twitter saying, well, I'm sorry, but your medications were shipped parcel post. So therefore, I'll express mail, priority mail, first class. And and the list just goes on and on about all the packages that will be shipped before their medications. So I just continue, you know, I want to continue reaching out to attorney generals, FTC, our legislators to to change like how how our medications are handled and just make sure that they're shipped safely and quickly.
0: Yeah, the issues that are associated with mail order are so far reaching. And I know, you know, so many people are following the work you're doing Loretta on that, on on behalf of everyone who receives mail order medications and, and not by choice. Thank you for everything you're doing. It's It's a lot, a lot of work for somebody who didn't start off to do this. <laughs>
1: It is, it is. But it's really hopeful to see like more advocates and more people getting involved and caring. And, you know, all of these issues lead back to the PBMs, both best issues in mind, you know, it's, it really is uh, interesting, like all that we've uncovered and unfolded, but there's more momentum gaining. And I see it and it's extremely hopeful.
3: And I That's think awesome. you, you you just made a good point, And that is choice. And that is a lot of patients don't have a choice about mail order or they don't have a choice about their PBM or their formularies or or which pharmacy to go to, whether to use their local independent pharmacy or whether to use one of the chain pharmacies or whether to use mail order. And so I think part of what the PBMs have done is they've taken away the consumer, the patient choice. Uh, maybe the person who, you know, in the summertime, maybe they don't want to get their prescription mail order. Maybe they would rather go in their, their retail pharmacy. Some people may be perfectly happy with mail order and say, ah, you know, I, I live a long ways from a store. It's convenient for me. You know, I love it. Uh, you know, you have a wide range of consumer experiences. And, and I think part of it is, you know, when the PBMs force us to choose one particular path or another, that's when we have problems arise.
1: That's, that's, yeah.
0: Yeah. Thank you. Go ahead,
1: Loretta. I was going to say, um, yeah. And my, whenever I spoke to my son's transplant team, I was alarmed to find that they did try to pill, like they wrote a pill for us to be able to get the medications locally. I mean, they fought for us because they knew that that was a risk that we didn't want to take. And I asked them to try to pill it, and they were, you know, absolutely all in trying to appeal it. But I learned that they would have to hire additional staff just be able to like get patients like my son medications. These are transplant physicians and nurses who are trying to match, you know, children that need organs and with with people who have donated uh, organs at the worst times in their lives, you know, with these families going through such hard times and, instead of just being able to do their jobs, they're having to hire additional staff just to be able to navigate all of the PBM issues, whether that's the formulary issues or the issues with someone not being able to get the medication now downstairs at the pharmacy, you know, mm-hmm. in, in 10 to 15 minutes. You know, now they're having to wait days and weeks. It's just uh, senseless.
0: A question for for both of you. Do you think that PBMs are as well known now, you know, it used to be, I ask because it used to be that no one knew what a PBM was. Nobody knew about pharmacy benefit managers. And then over time, there's been a lot of coverage about PBMs, PBM middlemen and so forth. But the question is always out there. Do people really understand that they exist, the roles that they play? I'm just curious from your point of view as a patient and as, you know, patients who know and interact with other patients.
3: No, I do not think patients realize what PBMs are. I don't think many physicians realize what PBMs are. You know, I used to, a long time ago, work for one of the Blue Crosses. And, you know, that was before all this PBM evolution. Everything was sort of handled in-house. And really, I think the landscape of, of healthcare and of pharmacy has changed so much In, say, the last five to 10 years, it used to be PBMs were just claims processors, basically. And they do so much more now. And I don't think people really fully understand uh, the depth and breadth of what these middlemen do. What I have found this past year in trying to help patients get access to their medications is they do not have a clue what the pharmacy benefit manager is and what they do. So if I say to them, CVS Caremark, they may be, oh, but I use Walgreens or I use Kroger's or I use Walmart. They, they don't have a concept of, oh, there's a processor, there's a middleman. I'll, I'll say, flip your insurance card over and let's look at the back and let's see this name. You know, th- there's this middleman processor. And likewise, I think physicians who write the prescriptions, a lot of times there's someone else, especially in large practices who handle these sorts of prior authorizations or formulary challenges or issues. And so the bedside physician doesn't necessarily understand that there are now these middlemen involved uh, in, in patients getting access to their medication. So I would say more people are aware of pharmacy benefit managers, but even myself, I mean, I've worked in and around healthcare for 25 plus years, and I had never heard the term pharmacy benefit manager until the past 12 months when I had a medication issue. So a lot of times it's only when you run into an issue that you become educated about these issues and these challenges. Things are clicking along smoothly. You, you It's really kind of transparent to you what's going on behind the scenes.
0: That's fascinating. So what would you recommend? you know as far as educating the public or people who don't know about pharmacy benefit managers what are the best ways to get the word out about who they are and what they do especially right now well maybe not right now there's quite a lot going on right now as we're recording this but in general to to help people understand why their drug costs are what they are, why they have access to some medications, but not others, unless they choose to pay more money or pay out of pocket. what's the best way that we can continue to, to spread the word about the role and the power that PBMs have over patients' medications?
1: You know, when we see patients that are having issues, we need to educate them on what the source of the, the issue really is, and that's our opportunities to try to uh, educate them on what a PBM is and how they impact all of their access to medications and pharmaceutical care. And I, I also think it's important to also teach them about the vertical integration and how the way you know they they're now monopolized and there's the oligopoly. I just think there's there's so much there that we have a responsibility to teach them. And I recently sent. Beth, the information on the down with Express Scripts and Accredo Facebook group. You know, it's like these patients at one time, they didn't, un- they understood they were having these issues and there's this Facebook group, you know, talking about them and not knowing they're talking about them, but their issues are all about PBMs and their middle pharmacies. So now we're able to teach that group, you know, what a PBM is and uh, they're learning like most of the people now in that group know what a PBM is. And I just think that's what it's going to take is, you know, we need a major social media uh, push to uh, educate these patients as they're having issues like, okay, this is where the source of your problem is. And this is how you report, you know, these companies for these issues and use that opportunity as an educational teaching moment as they're in the midst of whatever issue is that they're having because um, I think sometimes after a while if they're not in that moment they might just you know put it aside and forget about it and never learn but it's just so important that we teach them and I always I think it's important too to uh, let them know that if they're having issues, they're, they're most likely not the only ones. So their voice is so important. I remember early on a pharmacist from putt (laughs) told me, um, don't give up. And I didn't give up. I'm not going to give up. And I, I made that oath to her that I would not give up (laughs) until we win and I'll keep it. I, I don't know if, if we'll win in my lifetime, but I'll do my best to try.
0: That's awesome. Loretta. You really are. You're, you're great. It's such a pleasure. I was just reflecting as you and Beth are speaking. I'm just thinking, like, what an honor it is to, to talk with both of you because you both invest so much of your heart and your soul in the work and it shows. And I, I know that the patients that you interact with must be so grateful. I think if I were a patient, as you were just talking, I was thinking, I. I don't even know where I would start. I guess I would probably get on social media and be like, "Hey, this happened. Does anyone have any advice?" But I I do think it's incumbent on us to keep pushing forward out there to educate as many people as we can about who your pharmacy benefit manager is and the role they play. There are there are some PBMs out there that are that are good PBMs, or they they aspire to be that. They try. They're the ones that are the pass throughs and the ones that are transparent. But those are so few and far between in a country where three PBMs have some 80% of the market. And if you factor in the other, the next big three after that is more than 90% of the market. 90% of all prescriptions that are processed in this country are going to go through one of these six PBMs who are now under study. By the Federal Trade Commission, as of a decision that was made about a month ago. So, yeah, uh, Beth, what about you? What are your thoughts?
3: Well, I think you know it's a daily occurrence on social media to see patients expressing frustration, to see patients, um, you know, even if they don't know it's the PBM that's at the heart of their issue. That's sort of where it can be traced back. A lot of times they'll say my insurance. They'll use that term, my insurance, but they don't realize that you know their pharmacy benefit has a different authority behind the scenes than their insurance than their medical side. So part of it is education, but the social media I think has been the great tool among patients that we can connect with one another, that we can share our stories, and and our stories are very powerful, and and we help each other. I have talked to so many patients that that they're grateful for the information they get, and they say, Oh my goodness, if you had not told me XYZ, I would have had no idea. And really, I mean, that's wonderful, but it's also a shame that it takes a patient knowing to go on social media to complain and having a complete stranger sort of rescue them, if you will, and pass along information that they should be getting from uh, another source. And I think that speaks to where what we really need is there's a a great lack of patient protections, especially, you know, if we're going to have these sorts of, as you say, three corporations that control 80% of our prescription access and prescription processing and, and formulary access, there needs to be some federal protections in place for these patients. It shouldn't just be, you know, one patient finds another patient online and we sort of help ourselves along. Because think about all the people you know who don't have access to the internet or who don't think to go online or who, you know, are just at the mercy of of a kind heart to help them along. Um, And that to me is what our regulatory bodies should be doing is they should be stepping up. They should be protecting patients. They should be ensuring a level playing field that you know, we, we all have access to the medications that our doctors prescribe, that they should be safe medications, um, and I think that's a minimal ask. You know, we are patients, but we're also consumers. We are paying premiums for this service, and yet we have really no one to turn to when there is a problem. You know, I, I echo what Loretta said earlier about, you know, who do you call when there's an issue, and I ran into that same challenge of, okay, we, we as patients and sort of clearly saw a patient safety issue, we saw a patient safety risk, and we didn't know who to call. We didn't know who to turn to because who do you go for something like this? Uh, and that's the piece I think that's missing is, is, is we need to get beyond simply sort of word of mouth and, and Facebook groups and social media, and, and we need to really start getting some concrete actions uh, and protections in place. We can't just have the PBM industry policing itself. That hasn't worked. Uh, and I think there's ample evidence to that. so so it's it's time for action. We all know what the issues are. We've all had thoughtful discussions. Uh, you know it's it's time to get some action, in my opinion.
2: Makes an interesting point, though, that you know we have all of these regulatory bodies on pretty much the entire process to make things safe. You know, we, pharmacists have to answer to the board of the pharmacy. You know, the the drugs have to you know answer. The manufacturers have to answer to the FDA, and they're all to prevent medication issues you know whether it be errors or whether it be inappropriate storage or inappropriate medications being you know manufactured there's all everybody has somebody to answer to except for the PBMs and they're the ones that are causing the biggest issues in the industry when it comes to the patient uh, outcomes and, and and errors and not safe type decisions and you there needs to be someone that they answer to as well, not just in the health insurance industry, because they are, like you, you say, Beth, they're they're practicing medicine, and they have nobody to tell them that they can't do that.
0: So a question for the panel, Scott, this includes you. What do you think, in, in reality, what do you think needs to happen in order for there to be the kind of transparency of information that Beth was pointing to? how how to make a complaint, how to escalate that complaint, where to get help, what needs to happen in order for that to be a priority for patients in our system right now?
1: I personally think that we need, you know, legislators to take more action, and we need laws to protect patients, right? And and we need those laws enforced. I'm seeing, you know, in states where they have patient choice uh, of pharmacy laws, it's like there's still no real protection for some patients, or they still don't know. Okay, well, I thought they passed this this law, but why am I still being forced? So. I think that needs to to happen. I mean, just finding out today that if you call CMS to report fraud of these companies, we're going to have to go back to the, the same ones that are committing the fraud. I mean, that is severely wrong and broken. And whoever did that needs to be investigated. You should not be able to do that. And that is not protection. That's like, you know, being abused by somebody and then you're telling that person to go to the abuser. It's not, not making sense. That needs to happen. And There needs to be accountability for sure. And I know we're talking about, you know, regulatory. There needs to be accountability too on these employers that are selecting these plans, they need transparency on the real issues. Some don't even have a clue. So, you know, when the wealthiest employers in our nation, like seriously, Coke, I mean, I, I've i heard that they love CBS. Well, do you love the fact that you're forcing your employees to, you know, bake their medications and in, in these trucks and, and that, you know, they're forced to go to a pharmacy with a 20% air rate? Because I don't. And I don't think that's ethical. And I think that these large employers and the unions too- that sometimes use the same type of plans they need to be held accountable too when they make decisions that impact patient safety and patient care so i think that's that's just two ways that i see us moving forward
3: well i you know i agree and, and you know i echo that that we absolutely need some legislative remedies that have accountability you know the pbms are a very large part of our healthcare system now and and they're really lack transparency, and there's lacks accountability. And so we need both of those mechanisms in place on a variety of issues related to PBMs. It's, It's not just one particular issue. There's a whole big, I think, sort of policy box related to care patients receive. But the big thing to me is that patients don't choose the PBM. We really are captive consumers to the PBM. And so we work with our insurance plan and the insurance plan sort of subcontracts to the PBM for pharmacy management. And so to some extent, we can go to our insurance plan and we can complain or we have recourse, but it's really up to the insurance plans you know, if they approve of these types of behaviors by the PBMs. Um, and to some extent, there's some education to be done there. You know, they're told, oh, you'll get cost savings. And a lot of this is couched in savings to the plans. But a lot of it is just creative cost shifting. It's, it's your saving on the pharmacy side. But what they're actually doing is creating more costs on the medical side. So, for example, with my formulary switch, yes, you may have saved some money, on the pharmacy side, but for those patients who suffered a stroke as a result of an adverse event and ended up in the hospital, I can guarantee you those were some very expensive medical claims that you paid. So you really didn't save money in, in the end, You know, not to mention the human cost that comes with that. But what we need, I think, is, is uh, in terms of regulatory body is something almost like a patient bill of rights is sort of a basic things. Uh, Should it not be that we all agree that our physician decides our medical care? Can we not all agree on something very simple, like if a patient is doing well and stable on a medication and that medication has been covered for years, that the insurance company cannot force that patient off that medication simply because they're getting a higher rebate, a higher kickback on another brand of medication? Um, You know, there are some basic things that I think we ought to be able to agree on to protect patients. And who that regulatory body is, I don't know. Uh, I would think the FTC ought to have a role in that, given that they are the body that protects consumers. As a patient, as a consumer, I've just really been puzzled who does protect patients and consumers. It, It seems that we're We, as captive patients, as captive consumers, we're kind of left out of the protection. Um, You know, we we don't really fall neatly under any little regulatory box. Uh, We're kind of, we're a little bit in the insurance box, but not really, because our insurance subcontracts it out. We're a little bit in the HHS box, but not really. Uh, We're a little bit covered by CMS, but not really. So, uh, you know, I think we need some clarity in the regulations too, as to who holds PBMs accountable, but I think that um, even though a number of things might be controversial, I
0: think there's some basic uh, rights for patients we ought to be able to agree upon. I 100% agree. And before I have Scott answer, I just wanted to comment on something you both pointed to. So you have your employer who purchased the health plan. We actually, in our country, we we say that that's a competitive benefit that people will choose their job on the basis of how good the, you know, the benefits and the health insurance are. But what's going on in the background, and employers may know this or they may not know this as part of the dysfunction of this system, is that they're routinely being blamed for prior authorizations and high costs. So what happens is when the PBMs go before anybody, a a regulator, a legislator, you know, Congress, and they're asked why are costs so high? why are certain things not covered? why was this pushed back on the patient every single time they come back with well, that's what the employer wanted we're just doing what the employer wanted so they're they're throwing the employer under the bus while at the same time putting forward you know this thing about how we're here to help you and we can create this great benefits plan and it's everything your people are going to want and they're going to love it and that's going to make you more competitive on the job market. So it's a it's a weird kind of spiral that ends up, not working and then somehow, you know, making the problem worse every single year with every single open enrollment period, really um frustrating. And I think that's a topic we could probably talk about on a whole other show because there's so many things that go on in the relationship between brokers and the employers who, you know, purchase those benefits. Scott, let me give you a chance to weigh in. Uh, what do you think needs to happen?
2: Uh, I guess my first reaction is that with so many different avenues being approached to try to you know throw as many darts at the board and see what sticks as possible each state is kind of attacking it a different way some have involved the board of the pharmacy some have involved the department of insurance you know whatever avenue they've chosen that has stuck in their state you know is only going to apply to roughly let's just say half of the plans out there and then you've got the federal side where really nothing's going to get done and can't foresee a future where something's going to be significantly done from a reeling it all in under one body type scenario. So my first instinct is that I just don't know that it's possible. However, if you take away the PBM's incentives to do what they're doing, then you can solve 90% of the problem. And I think that if each... Regulatory body that's given the authority under whatever law or whatever state, you know, that they get legislation passed, in that you you start to disincent- start to disincentivize them from doing things. Like, if you take rebates away, then the the non medical switching basically goes back to cost. You know, if they want to continue to blame the drug companies for costs at that point, that's a whole different battle or fight that you could pick. But ultimately, for a patient bill of rights, I don't even – it would be great to have one just to have one. But I think that if you take away their motivation to do the things that they do that they've been able to get away with for so long, even if it's different regulatory bodies doing so, then I think it's possible that – you can take away their motivation for what causes the patient harm, which is financial. And, and however you choose to do it, you know, through which body, if it's effective, it doesn't matter. But I think that that's the key. If if you can take away the motivation for as to why they do these things to patients, then then I think you're going to get a better outcome than testing them against uh, um, you know a, a set of rules or, or an agency that will likely slap them on the wrists when they do it knowingly and, and just assume to pay the fine and keep the profit um, for whatever it is that they're doing. So my, my answer to that is is that I think that whatever regulatory body happens to have influence over them, if, if they can remove their financial motivations, then I think that you get a lot better patient protection.
0: Really well said, Scott. And I I 100% agree with you. I actually agree with all of you. Uh, Your comments and your perspectives are invaluable to us. We are coming to the end of the podcast. Normally, I would say something like, what advice do you have? That's a favorite question that I have. But I think what I would love to know, and I think what people listening would love to know is, what are you working on now? And and what is next for you? And Loretta, I'd love maybe to
1: have you start and tell us what you're working on and, and what you will be working on. So for me, you know, I'm on the accountability step, you know, I've reached out to the boards of pharmacy and they didn't help and I'm just kind of hitting a wall. Okay, so now they didn't follow their own rules. So where do I go now? Who's going? Who's the next? Where's the point of accountability? And our board's even going to be able to regulate temperature issues. So that's where I'm at with that. Additionally, on all the other PBM issues, I I want to start really pushing these other regulatory agencies to do their jobs and protect patients. So uh, I continue to work on that. Continue to reach out to legislators to stop the forcing of millwater pharmacy. I believe, I believe that should be a federal rule or law. I know, like Scott said, that that's a dream, but you know what? I I believe in miracles. My son is one. So um, uh, I just accountability is what's really missing here and it's time. So I also am going to be working on the people from the documentary. Would you like shots with that? And I just think that's a great opportunity to teach the public about the issues with pharmacy, pharmacy benefit managers, and hopefully to get a people a little worked up about these issues to the point where they're ready to take action because, you know, I'm ready to protest. I want to go. I'm so tired of seeing what they're doing to patients and having to go to bed, you know, almost in tears some nights from hearing the stories from these patients, you know. So uh, I'm excited about that. And that's that's what I'll be working on. And I just continue, you know, if there's any other pharmacists or patients, you know, who are listening that have ideas, you know, I, I love connecting with people. Um, I've learned a lot from others. And I'll continue to do that until we win. Awesome. That is awesome. Great job.
0: Beth, what about you?
3: Well, the first goal was to get this particular medication back on formulary and check the box. We did that. Thank goodness. That that was, I felt like Yay. we moved a mountain with that one. Yeah. <laughs> Once in a while, you win one. And um, so next, my goal is to uh, get policies in place to prevent such things from happening again in the future. Because the fact is, uh, my PBM could turn around next month and do it all over again, either with this class of drugs or with another medications, because there are no policies to prevent non-medical switching from happening. So and you can
2: guarantee that they will.
3: <laughs> you can guarantee yes, you that can. they will. And so that is my next thing that I'm working on is trying to make people, first of all, aware that this can happen, that this is perfectly legal. And to try to push for policies both at the state level and the federal level, because I do believe ultimately that's where the ultimate answer is going to be is at the federal level. So that decisions that are made between a patient and a doctor are respected and that our coverage does not equal care. I think we all know that. And I think we've become so acutely aware of that in the last couple of years, especially, and more and more patients are becoming aware of this. And so I personally, that that's kind of my next step as I'm working for policies to try to get that formalized and patient
0: protections in place. That's great, Beth. I really wish you so much success. And you too, Loretta, what you ladies are working on is so important. And you are providing information and giving hope to people out there and, and to us, to the providers as well. So I'd like to take a moment now to, again, thank you all for being on the panel. Scott, thank you for joining me today as co-host. And for everyone who's listening, thank you for tuning in. If you like this program, if you have questions for the panel, or if you have comments for us, please feel free to leave them in the notes section. Otherwise, I will say thank you for this month, and we will see you on the podcast next month.